Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Glad to have you along with us today. And there is a lot to complain about in the church today. My social media is just continually filled with stories from my fellow Catholics complaining about one thing or another, the liturgy this and the bishops that, and did you hear what the Pope said on his latest uh, airplane interview or whatever. And some complaints, of course, uh, are valid. But others can betray a darker side, which I would identify as a lack of trust in the providence of God. So today we're going to take a look at complaining and some of the dangers that it poses if it becomes habitual. We're also going to talk a bit about the connection between the betrayal of Judas and another kind of betrayal that is all too common uh, among Catholics today. Also, I recently talked about the relationship between stress and screen usage, whether it's the television screen or the computer or the smartphone. And uh, so today we'll be sharing some activities that can help calm you down that do not involve screens of every, any kind, okay? Getting away from the screen and the stress. But first, <clears throat> pardon me, a few words about the gospel from last Sunday in the ordinary form. And in case you missed last week's program, we're going to be taking a break from the... Uh, uh, extraordinary form lectionary, which uh, we've been through the Sunday lectionary all the way through a couple of times now on the program. And considering that the ordinary form's three-year cycle will give us more readings to talk about, and the fact that really the majority of VMPR listeners, uh, as the majority of Catholics, period, regularly assist at this Mass, uh, I hope these reflections will be of benefit. So, The Ordinary Form Liturgy began this week with the fifth Sunday of Easter in year C, the Gospel taken from John 13, uh, 31 through 35. And the key verse for us today is going to be verse 34. I give you a new commandment, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you should also love one another. And as uh, per usual, I'm going to be reading from the New Catholic Bible Translation. After Judas had departed, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a short time longer. I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you should also love one another. This is how everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. As far as the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, this passage is part of probably the best-known section of the fourth Gospel. And chapter 13 begins with the, uh, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples at the Last Supper, and then he announces that one of them will betray him. Uh, verse 27 says, As soon as Judas had received the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus said to him, Do quickly what you are going to do. Uh, After the departure of Judas, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. Love one another, just as I have loved you, so you should love one another. Now, to love others is not really a new commandment. You know, in Matthew 22, when someone asks him, Teacher, What is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replies by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
He calls this the greatest and the first commandment. Then he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That are quoting Leviticus 19.18. So Jesus isn't the first to advocate friendship or mutual service or brotherly affection. But to love as he loved goes further, so, so much further as to become an absolute. To love others as Christ loved others is revolutionary. And this gospel shows that Christ's new commandment is the most original sign of the Christian community's faithfulness to him. This is how everyone will know that you're my disciples, he said. So according to Jesus, they, and that means we, uh, are to love others based on his love for us, a love that is self-giving and sacrificial. And that kind of love brought unbelievers to Christ and his church back in the first century, and it still does today. It is this love that keeps Catholic Christians strong enough in his grace to remain united in a time of ecclesial confusion and a world that is increasingly hostile to God generally and and especially to the mystical body of Christ. Just as our good Lord Jesus was incarnate uh, and, and a living example of God's love, so we are called to be living examples of Jesus' love. You know, the the revelation of God became concrete in the Incarnation, and our spiritual attitude uh, becomes concrete in action. It's it's not not rocket science. Um, It's the heart of the imitation of Christ. So in verse 35, Jesus says that our Christ-like love will show that we're his disciples. But sometimes I wonder, when people look at at what Catholics are are routinely posting on, on social media, Do they see this mutual, sacrificial love? Or do they see a bunch of petty bickering and suspicion and jealousy and resentment and division? More to the point, do people know that you and I are his followers by our conspicuous love for him and our our conspicuous love for our fellow members of the body of Christ? And don't get me wrong, there's a place for legitimate criticism in the church. And the theological virtue of love, as in, you know, caritas, faith, hope, and love, is a lot more than just, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings. Love, as a Christian virtue, is an act of the will, and not merely an emotional feeling. And because it is an act of the will, we can choose to love. We can love even our enemies. Like G.K. Chesterton said, love means to love that which is unlovable, or it is no virtue at all. And that attitude reveals itself in action. So, how do we love others the way Jesus loves us? Well, the church says by practicing these spiritual and corporal works of mercy, and also by realizing that love is not sacrificial unless it entails a cost. For example, by devoting time and, and energy to the welfare of others rather than your own. By serving even when it's difficult or inconvenient. By giving when it hurts. And by realizing that helping others can be stressful and and thankless and requires the the, the practice of the moral virtues, especially of patience and meekness. Not weakness, meekness. Meekness is the, the, the moral virtue that's opposed to anger. And while that doesn't mean being a doormat, it does mean turning the other cheek in the sense of being quick to forgive and, you know, just kind of absorbing hurts 
and, and slights from others without retaliating or complaining. <clears throat> that kind of love is hard to practice, and that's why people notice when you do it. It's the kind of love that requires the grace of God, and so people come to understand that you're not doing it on your own. Sacrificial love shows that Christians are empowered by a supernatural force. Now, to provide some more context, John 13 begins with the washing of the feet, and Peter being scandalized by Jesus washing washing the feet of the disciples, which is literally uh, the work of a slave. And yet, as our Lord said in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus explains in verse 14, If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have given you an example. What I have done for you, you should also do. Now, we've already noted in the passage about the the commandment of love is preceded by Christ predicting his betrayal and immediately followed by his predicting the, the denial of Peter. And after Jesus issues this new commandment to love one another as I have loved you, Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. But Jesus replies, will you really lay down your life for me? Amen, amen, I say to you, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. So John describes these brief moments in in clear detail. We can see that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew about the coming betrayal uh, by Judas. He knew about the coming denial of St. Peter. But he didn't do anything to alter the situation. Neither did he stop loving them. And in in this lies an important truth. Jesus knows exactly what you will do to hurt him. Every, Every little betrayal, he knows in advance. And he loves us anyway. I've often related the story of my my first confession, uh, you know, having been baptized as an adult. um, You know, I I was, I had the the original sin washed away as as well as uh, my my personal sins and the temporal punishment due for those sins. And yet God knew from all eternity that I would very soon betray that priceless gift of salvation, of the forgiveness of my sins. And so, he instituted the sacrament of penance so that I could be returned to that, that state of grace. He knew exactly what I would do. He knows what you will do to hurt him. And yet he still loves you and will forgive you when you sincerely repent and absolve you through his minister in the sacrament of penance. Judas didn't understand this and he died tragically. Peter came to understand and despite his shortcomings, and, and died triumphantly. To one love one another as Christ loves us, to, to serve to the point of taking the last place, giving up your life, is beyond human strength. It requires the graces won on the Holy Cross by our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's no nonsense. Okay, when we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, a, a modern betrayal of our Lord what we can do about it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
I imagine I imagine you've heard the story. Uh, May 9th, a Texas pastor, a certain Father Plant, reported that the tabernacle was stolen from St. Bartholomew the Apostle Catholic Church in Katy, Texas. Father Plant said via Twitter, our tabernacle was stolen last night. We don't know who did it, but the police are investigating. Please pray for us and for those who committed this criminal sacrilege. Later, a suspect, one Christian James Merritt, was charged with the theft, and a statement from the local diocese thanked the Katy Police Department and said, Sadly, the tabernacle has not yet been recovered, though efforts by the Katy Police are ongoing. In any case, such a theft uh, beyond material price is immeasurably hurtful to us, and speaking theologically, a sac- is sacrilegious. So, although the uh, theft followed a slew of attacks on Catholic churches and pro-life pregnancy centers across the country in response to the leak of the draft opinion of the Supreme Court regarding the so-called constitutional right to abortion. According to the Diocese of Houston-Galveston, quote, it is our understanding the theft was not motivated by last week's release of the draft Supreme Court opinion involving Roe v. Wade. Maybe, maybe not. Reports then circulated on Twitter that the tabernacle was discovered sitting in the lot next to a fast food restaurant. Adrian Fonseca of the Guadalupe Radio Network tweeted, They found the tabernacle at a Burger King. Appears to be cracked open. They stole our Lord and left behind the gold. Clearly the tabernacle was not stolen for the money, but for something far more precious, unquote. Which just brings us back to the, the attacks on Catholic churches and pro-life centers that weekend by the radical abortion activists. The group Ruth Sent Us, which is a reference to the late Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they announced in advance that they would be vandalizing Catholic churches and disrupting masses, and they were as good as their word. You know, one lady back on on the 6th of May, when when this first started happening, she said, I'm offering my rosaries this weekend for the protection of the clergy and mass goers, the police and security, and for the safety and change of heart of the pro-abortion protesters. Ruth sent us responded thusly, Stuff your rosaries and your weaponized prayer. We will remain outraged after this weekend, so keep praying. We'll be burning the Eucharist to show our disgust for the abuse Catholic churches have condoned for centuries. Catholic churches? Oh, sorry, sweetheart, there's only one Catholic church. And, and which abuses precisely has the church condoned for centuries? And I'll wait. Bueller? See, the, the ignorance and the irrational hatred of these violent and criminal bigots is typical of the diabolical opposition to our Lord Jesus Christ and his church. And that, by the way, has been condoned by anti-Catholic bigots for centuries. Now, over the weekend, on, in, in a lighter news, uh, I was in a parish in Raleigh, North Carolina, giving presentations on Our Lady of Good Success and Our Lady of Fatima. You know, before uh, Our Lady appeared to Lucia, Francisco, and Jacinta, the angel of Fatima taught them a prayer of reparation. My God, I believe, I adore, I trust, and I love you. I ask pardon for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not trust, and do not love you. The, the message of Fatima was about the danger posed by the, 
the spread of institutionalized atheism, and the loss of souls to hell because of the world's indifference to God. It was about reparation for the many outrages committed against the Immaculate Heart of Mary and against our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. But this was not the first time that Our Lady warned of these evils in our day. When Mary of Good Success appeared to Mother Mariana of Jesus in Quito, Ecuador, 400 years ago, she prophesied the profanation of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament in these our times. She said, Often during this epoch, the enemies of Jesus Christ, instigated by the demon, will steal consecrated hosts from the churches so that they might profane the Eucharistic species. My Most Holy Son will see himself cast upon the ground and trampled upon by irreverent feet. Now I can tell you that long before these latest outrages, the internet already abounded with videos of people desecrating consecrated hosts in the most abominable ways that you can imagine. But coming back to our, our tabernacle story, you know, like Mr. Merritt, the alleged thief in Texas, in Mother Mariana's day, back in the 16th century, the only way to obtain a consecrated host was by stealth or by force. You either broke into the tabernacle in the middle of the night or you put a gun to somebody's head. And, and that, was, that was true 400 years ago. That was true in, into the 1970s. Today, however, the infernal enemies of Christ can walk into virtually any Catholic church in the world and receive a consecrated host just by putting out their hand. Which is why it's absolutely crucial for priests and deacons and most especially uh, extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion to understand they have a duty to make sure that the hosts they distribute are consumed because they are routinely stolen for diabolical purposes. But that wasn't the only prophecy regarding the profanation of the Blessed Sacrament that uh, Mary of Good Success made 400 years ago. She also re uh, revealed that our Eucharistic Lord would be profaned, especially by the many sacrilegious communions of modern days. Remember, frequent communion was, was still... Uh, pretty rare in the 1600s. Looking ahead, though, she could see these many sacrilegious communions. I remember probably 10 or 12 years ago, I was at a conference speaking with uh, Father Bill Casey. And he said, just compare the short lines for confession at the typical parish on Saturday with the long lines for communion on Sunday. And he said, either we have a greater volume of saints in the Catholic Church today than ever before, or we have lots of sacrilegious communions. And, you know, probably the main reason why is that 70% of Catholics born after 1958 think the Holy Eucharist is just a symbol, just a reminder of Jesus. Now, as disappointed as I was um, over the lockdowns, remember the COVID lockdowns of the churches, they closed the churches? The one silver lining was that our Lord was not being routinely subjected to the Judas kiss of the sacrilegious communion. And, you know, at the parish that I visited this weekend, they celebrate both the traditional Latin Mass and the Novus Ordo Mass in English and Spanish. And during my visit, I had the honor of assisting at the traditional Latin Mass and at both the English and Spanish Novus Ordo Masses. Pastor there is a humble, 
devout and orthodox priest who is solid all the way through. His Novus Ordo Mass is what I refer to as a unicorn mass. Right? It's like a unicorn in the sense that you hear about him, but you almost never see one. You know, for example, he celebrates his Novus Ordo Mass ad orientum, same as the traditional Mass. Everyone receives communion on the tongue, kneeling at the altar rail. The organ and the choir are in the choir loft, frankly, where they belong. After the Pax Domini, the, um, the peace of the Lord be with you always and with your spirit, that prayer, there followed no invitation to offer each other a sign of peace which is a liturgical novelty, and by the way, completely optional. No priest is obliged to, to, to make that invitation. And needless to say, there were no extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. They do, however, have a church that's well attended, that looks like a Catholic church, and has an adoration chapel, not only with perpetual adoration, but perpetual exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. I told Father, if there had been a parish like this, if, if there had been a Mass like this for me to attend back home, I would, you know, 20 years ago, I would never have sought out the traditional Latin Mass in the first place. And I meant it. So parishes like that, they do exist, and they give me great hope. And, and just a fact that such a situation does exist in a regular diocesan parish is an inspiration to me. But a moment ago, I referred to a sacrilegious communion as a Judas kiss, and there's a connection there. In John 13, we read that as soon as Judas had received the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. See, that's like a a distorted mirror image of the grace that comes to us when we receive communion worthily. And it's interesting to note that it's precisely in the context of the Eucharistic discourse earlier in that same gospel, in John 6, that Christ says, Did I not choose you twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Although he was one of the twelve, he would be the one who would betray him. So it's in the context of Christ insisting that you must eat his flesh and drink his blood, or you have no life in you, that he reveals the identity, or uh, that his knowledge of his betrayer. He reveals that he already knows that one of them will betray him. And then in Matthew 26, when Judas um, kisses Jesus in the garden, verse 50 says, and this is the old Douay Reims, and Jesus said to him, friend, friend, whereto art thou come? See, most modern translations render it, why have you come, or why are you here? But, but that would be, wherefore art thou come? Like, why are you come? Wherefore art thou Romeo? Where to art thou come has a connotation, friend, not what have you come for, but what have you come to? And do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And you note the action of his betrayal. They don't know which one Jesus is. The action of betrayal is when Judas's lips touch the Lord as ours do in Holy Communion. Which is why this, this Eucharistic connection to the betrayal of Judas reminds, us, reminds me of the, of the words of St. Paul. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. You know, some folks today want to portray Judas as misunderstood, 
that he was merely delusioned or disillusioned because because Jesus is talking about dying instead of setting up his his uh, kingdom, and his apparent betrayal was really it's just Judas trying to to force Jesus into a corner to to force his hand make him use his power to prove that he's Messiah and bring about the you know the glorious kingdom. That his betrayal was no greater a sin than than Peter's denial. And some folks will remind us the church has never taught conclusively that Judas is in hell. And that may be, but the idea that Judas was somehow saved doesn't fit with the scripture. John's gospel, uh, Jesus, speaking of the apostles, he says, not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost, literally the son of perdition, so that scripture might be fulfilled. That literal translation, the son of perdition, reflects uh, a Hebrew expression that means one who's destined for destruction by his own free action. Right? Satan's part in the betrayal of Jesus doesn't remove any of the responsibility from Judas. Okay. Can I finish this up on the other side? And then we're going to talk a bit about um, complaining and uh, the danger that it poses when we indulge in it too much. That and more when we come back. Stay with us. No Nonsense Catholic, Unvirgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. We were just talking about the connection between the betrayal of Judas, especially the way it's, it's, it's uh, predicted and then achieved in the Gospel of John, and sacrilegious communion. And I was saying uh, before the break that Satan's part, you know, it, it says that, that when uh, uh, Judas ate the bread, Satan entered into him. I just wanted to point out that, that Satan's part in the betrayal of Jesus doesn't remove the responsibility or the accountability of Judas. His betrayal of Jesus was foretold in, in the Psalms, Psalm 41, Psalm 55. And, and God in his omnipotence knew it was going to happen. This is, you know, when we talk about predestination. But that comprehends the means as well as the end, right? Uh, just the fact that God knows what is going to happen doesn't remove our free choices. He just knows the choices we're going to make, right? His, his predestination, his omniscience embodies the choices of men. And in the final result, Judas betrayed Jesus because he wanted to. And it was by his free choice that the scriptures were then fulfilled. Now, in the end, we see that there is a connection between the betrayal of Judas and the sacrilegious communions. If you go to Mass, and you know that you're not in a state of mortal sin, if you've missed Mass and uh, by your own fault and haven't gone to confession or, or some other reason, then you know that you're not uh, in a state of grace, that you need to get to confession. But because of uh, human respect or, you know, uh, whatever it might be, r- routine, force of habit, if you receive communion anyway, that's on you. There is a, there's a connection between the betrayal of Judas and the sacrilegious communion, because in both cases, we are betraying Christ with a kiss, and we will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. Okay. Uh, I started the show by saying there's a lot to complain about in the Catholic Church these days. My Facebook feed is continually filled with uh, stories uh, about, you know, 
my Catholic fellow Catholics complaining about one thing and another, the liturgy, liturgy the bishops, the Pope, uh, etc., etc. And some complaints are valid, but others can, as I said, betray a lack of trust in the providence of God. So I wanted to take a look at, at some questions. Why do we complain? What happens when we complain? Uh, can it be harmful? Uh, what if it becomes habitual? You know, for one thing, we can certainly be sure that uh, complaining isn't new. You know, the chosen people in the book of Exodus do a lot of complaining, murmuring, they call it. You know, so first off, we can see that complaining can be uh, uh, or can become a habitual response to stress, to stress in our lives. Exodus 16, 2 and 3 says, In the desert, the entire community of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. The children of Israel said to them, Would that the hand of the Lord had killed us in the land of Egypt, where we were seated by our pots filled with meat, and where we had more than enough bread to eat. Instead, you brought us out into this desert to slay the whole assembly with hunger. You know, it had happened before, it was happening again. And as the Israelites encountered, you know, dangers and hardships and shortages and other inconveniences, they complained bitterly. And, and longed to be back in Egypt. But as always, you know, God provided for their needs. Difficult circumstances lead to stress, and complaining is, you know, because of our fallen nature, a, a natural response. The Israelites didn't really want to be back in Egypt. They just wanted their life to get a little easier. You know, but the pressure of the moment in, 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 in that situation, they couldn't focus on the cause of their stress, which in this case was their lack of trust in God, but they could only think about, you know, some way to try and mitigate it or escape from it, somebody to blame. So when difficulties and oppositions come your way, you should resist the temptation to blame others or, or make some quick retreat and instead focus on God's power and wisdom to help you identify and deal with the cause of your stress. But some complaints are valid. Uh, think of Numbers eleven, eleven. right? This, it's, this ongoing situation. Moses says to the Lord, why are you torturing your servant? Have I not found favor in your sight that you would burden me with this people? You know, the Israelites complained, then Moses complained. But God responded positively to Moses and not to the rest of the people. Now, why should that be? Because the people complained to one another. And, and they complained to one another, and nothing was accomplished. Moses took his complaint to God, who can solve any problem. So many of us are good at complaining to each other, or, and, or on Facebook, to, to perfect strangers. <laughs> but we need to learn to take our problems to the one who can actually do something about them. In other words, you want results, stop complaining, and start praying. Turn your complaints into prayers. Some complaints um, come from focusing on unfulfilled desires, dissatisfaction. There's a lot of that in life. And it comes when our attention shifts from what we have to what we don't have. You know, the people of Israel in the desert, they didn't seem to notice that what God was doing for them, that, that he had set them free, that, that he was making them into a nation, that he was giving them a new land because they were so wrapped up in what God wasn't doing for them. 
And even though he gave them the, the manna, the, the, the miraculous bread from heaven, all they could think about was, was the food they had to leave behind in Egypt. And I guess somehow they seem to have forgotten that the cost of that food was slavery. And, and before the, we judge the Israelites too harshly, though, it might be helpful to think about what occupies our attention most of the time. You know, are we grateful for what God has given us? Or um, are we always thinking about what we'd like to have? The kind of church that, that I would like, the kind of bishop I want, the kind of pope I want. Hey, if it's not too much to ask, how about a, a, a Catholic president that's authentically Catholic? But we shouldn't allow those unfulfilled desires to cause us to forget all the gifts that, that, uh, of God in our life, our, our faith. Our, our redemption, our, our family, our health, our friends, the work that we do, and most especially the gift of Christ himself in the Holy Eucharist. The chosen people in the desert got the manna. We get the true bread from heaven. And yet sometimes we can long for our former life the way they longed for the flesh pots of Egypt. Thomas Akempis gives us the answer. He says we should be grateful for all that God gives us because it's not our due, but his gift, right? God doesn't owe us anything. So we should be grateful for whatever the Lord gives us, no matter what it is. You know, in the Imitation of Christ, Thomas writes, Be grateful, therefore, for the least gift, and you will be worthy to receive more. Regard the least gift as the greatest, for if you consider the dignity of the giver, no favor will seem small or valueless. Nothing is small that comes from the Most High God. Indeed, even if he sends punishment and affliction, we should accept it with gratitude, for whatever he permits to happen to us is always with our salvation in view. And that, of course, is the greatest gift of all. But what happens if we choose to complain instead? Well, for one thing, complaining harms ourselves and others. You know, and why are complaining and, and, and criticizing and arguing, why are those things harmful? Well, think about what you see on social media regularly, on, on Twitter and Facebook. And now consider that the majority of people do not go to Mass. Uh, for that matter, the, the majority of Catholics don't go to Mass. They're not hearing the gospel read to them every Sunday. And that means that you may be the only gospel that, uh, that, that some people ever encounter. And as, you know, St. Francis allegedly said, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. The point is that if all that people know about the church is that Catholics are, are con constantly arguing and complaining and, and gossiping, and criticizing our priests and bishops, what kind of impression are those people going to take away? Belief in Christ should, should show forth in our daily lives. It should serve to unite us with our fellow members of, of the body of Christ. As Jesus said in, in the gospel reading in our first segment, this is how everyone will know you are dis my disciples if you love one another. Hence, St. Paul says in Philippians 2.14, Do everything without grumbling or questioning. 
that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine like lights in the world. So maybe we should stop complaining about the church and arguing with our fellow Catholics in public and, and let the world see Christ in us. A good Christian life, your life, my life, should be characterized by moral purity and by patience and, and peacefulness, meekness, the other virtues, so that we will shine like lights in the world, even in the midst of a, of a crooked and perverse generation, which I'm starting to think is every generation. A trans, transformed life is the most effective witness of the power of God's grace. Think about the example that you're setting. If you, is your life shining brightly, or is it clouded by constant complaining and a critical spirit? Pope St. John Paul II said, The first requirement of the new evangelization is the actual witness of Christians who live by the gospel. That's job one. Job one for lay Catholics is to stop complaining and to be a light in the world. And that's no nonsense. When we come back, we've been talking about uh, uh, stress and, and how that's related to screen time. So we're going to talk about several ways that you can wind down and de-stress that don't involve any uh, uh, digital media or screen. That and more when we return with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to No-Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You know, most of us are turning to our phones and tablets and computer screens and televisions at the end of the day. Help us unwind at the end of the day. But did you know that screens stimulate your brain and actually keep you awake rather than calm you down? Cell phones, for example, emit blue light, which blocks melatonin which is the hormone that uh, makes you sleepy. Hence the phenomenon of doom-scrolling until the wee hours of the morning. You know, relaxing and regularly getting uh, enough sleep is essential to your health and to a productive life. And I recently saw a little article, I, I believe it was from Guideposts. You know, I wind up on all these mailing lists, email lists, and, and this article, you know, uh, struck my uh, eye. And um, it was a list of seven calming activities that you can take up before bed that don't require any screen time. And so, um, just quickly, I'd like to go through those seven activities. The first on the list, because Guidepost is a uh, Christian uh, outfit, albeit non-denominational, is, they say, to meditate or to pray. Now, everybody these days says that meditation is a good way to relieve anxiety and let go of stress negativity. But, you know, rather than, you know, doing yoga or some other new agey practice, why not engage in a proven method of Christian meditation like the Most Holy Rosary? You know, it's a beautiful meditative prayer that will not only help you relax and improve your state of mind, but it will put your soul in a better state. 
you know, regular contemplative prayer uh, will help you become a more peaceful person just all around. So pray, that's number one. Number two on the list was read the Bible. You know, we all have responsibilities, make it difficult to connect with God uh, during the day. So you can make the most of your downtime in the evening by getting closer to God through reading the Bible. You know, you might want to practice Lectio Divina, which is a time-tested meditative approach to reading the scriptures, or you might just choose certain comforting passages that you like to reflect on. Um, You remember St. Augustine said that we talk to God when we pray, but he answers us when we read the Holy Scripture. So contemplating the truth of God's Word can help you calm your heart and, and, and quiet your mind and get closer to God in the process. Number three on the list is other reading. You know, um, apparently, science is telling us that reading can make us happier. This is according to the University of Liverpool's Center for Research into Reading, Literature, and Society. Quote, reading can provide profound therapeutic exploration to regular stress management. And they would include both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, Reading, they say, induces sleep by putting your consciousness at ease. Now, that would be reading books as opposed to reading off a screen. And also, they recommend light reading at bedtime to put your mind in a calmer state before sleep. Now, I think when Catholics think about reading, we think about spiritual reading, which is naturally the Bible. But after that, you know, perhaps one of the spiritual classics like the introduction to the devout life or the city of God or Augustine's confessions or my favorite, the uh, imitation of Christ. But Thomas Akempis himself tells us that we should quote, just as gladly read simple and devout books as those of deep and subtle learning. And I tell you, I cannot recommend highly enough the books and and booklets by Father Paul O'Sullivan. The wonders of the mass, the wonders of the holy name, An Easy Way to Become a Saint, How to Be Happy, How to Be Holy, among others. Uh, Father O'Sullivan, he was a Dominican, he was a great devotee of the Holy Rosary, and also of um, the Carmelite spirituality, the little way of St. Therese of Lisieux. And and his books are not only simple and devout, but they're really comforting, like a cool drink of water or, or a breath of fresh air. Number four, we talked about this earlier, practicing an attitude of gratitude. It's like in the old song, uh, Bing Crosby, When you're worried and cannot sleep, just count your blessings instead of sheep. Uh, It's a good practice. Count your blessings. Take a few moments, and at the end of the day, you make your examination of conscience. You say your prayers, but then seek out some positive thing that happened to you either that day or just some good memory. Um, you know, thank God for it. Think, think about the people in your life that, that are a blessing to you, you know. And, and modern research demonstrates that gratitude can calm anxiety and, and reduce stress and, and all these things help you have a more positive outlook. But not only was, you know, be giving gratitude to God uh, at the end of the day, I mean, it's going to end your day on a peaceful note, but it's going to help you to cultivate this attitude of gratitude that, again, brings you closer to God. Number five is writing your journal. That's not something I do personally. Um, you know, I'm, I'm constantly writing my thoughts out and sharing them on various media, like now, for instance. <laughs> but, uh, but a lot of folks, you know, uh, in Catholic circles, Matthew Kelly uh, among them, 
would recommend journaling and um, even at mass to, to bring your journal. And when something strikes you from one of the readings or Father's homily, even maybe the, the, the lyrics of one of the hymns or something, write it down, he says, and write down why, uh, you know, it, it was significant to you. And, and that's something that's, you know, um, going to help you. Um, because when you write these things down, make them concrete, you know, get your troubles and um, things on, on paper, it can help you to open your heart to uh, God's voice. Because uh, you can come back to it later, and it helps you remember. Listening to soothing music, that's an important thing. And, you know, um, the article I read from Guidepost said, listening to music is good for your heart and mind. I would amend that to say good music is good for your heart and mind. You know, without getting into a critique of, of modern musical styles, not all music is created equal. You know, and, and that's true even of good music. For example, you know, uh, good music can expand your horizons and, and, and stimulate your intellect, but not always. You know, take polka music, please. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, a, a good polka, for example, is meant to get your toes tapping. To, to, you know, it's going to stimulate you to get up and dance. Even, even a rousing uh, uh, waltz by Strauss is, is meant to motivate you and get you on your feet. A march played by a military band makes your chest swell and, you know, ins- uh, uh, inspires feelings of, of, of patriotism. And that's just a couple of examples from what we generally think of as good music. But it's music that's anything but calming. On the other hand, music has been used traditionally to give voice to our prayers. Gregorian chant is, is scripture in a musical setting. The psalms were meant to be sung. And they can be heard in, in a variety of settings with soothing instrumentals and vocals. You know, religious music can help you relax because you're listening to prayers or, or the word of God set to these calming melodies that can, you know, help bring you spiritual comfort as well as encourage a better night's sleep. <clears throat> listening to somebody with a soothing voice read aloud is, has a similar effect, hence the traditional bedtime story. Um, you can access all kinds of Catholic audio these days. I would recommend the Amen smartphone app from the Augustine Institute. They have a feature called Evening Psalms and Stories for Sleep, which is just what you think, as well as the Life of Christ and daily Mass readings, uh, daily reflections, and another daily feature, the Bible in a Year, which is read by yours truly, and it's free. Now, this does involve, since it's a computer app, it involves a, a smartphone or a tablet or whatever, but not the screen, because you're listening rather than, than watching or, or scrolling. And, uh, you know, speaking of soothing music, I sometimes in the morning, I'm the first one up, and, you know, if it's too chilly to, for me to want to go outside, I will um, turn on some instrumental, medieval-inspired instrumental music uh, in the background while I pray. You know, I mean, it's, it's so much better to start the day communicating with God accompanied by beautiful music rather than jumping right in to, you know, my emails or, or the, the stress of the morning news. And then last but certainly not least, take time to enjoy nature. Obviously, if you've been listening to this program for any length of time, you know that that's a drum that I've been beating for years. The importance of quiet and solitude uh, repeatedly advocated by spiritual writers, especially Thomas Akempis in The Imitation of Christ. 
He says, silence and in silence and stillness, the devout soul advances and learns the hidden truths of Scripture. And speaking of solitude in nature, those who, uh, you know, seek worldly diversions, and today that would include uh, channel surfing and, and scrolling social media, uh, to those he asks, what can you see elsewhere that you cannot see here? Meaning in nature. The earth and the sky and all the elements of which all earthly things are made. What can you see elsewhere that can endure long under the sun? Uh, Thomas von Kempen's advocacy of seeking solitude in nature was inspired by the spirituality of the great light of the Middle Ages, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who said, Believe one who has tried. You shall find a fuller satisfaction in the woods than in books. The trees and the rocks will teach you that which you cannot hear from masters. So, for those of us who do not enjoy the cloistered life in the middle of a medieval forest, (laughs) an evening walk can be a great way to spend a few minutes alone with the beauty that nature has to offer. And depending on your circumstances, that might mean taking a short drive to the park or stopping there on your way home. Uh, Depending upon where you live, uh, it might be you know, possible for you to step away from the, the, the noise and the interruptions and the, and the general confusion <laughs> of modern life simply by taking a walk around the neighborhood. You know, my neighborhood, my neighbors are very good about uh, cultivating their flowers and so forth in the front yard. Uh, um, you know, I also, talking about praying the office, when I pray the, the Vespers in the evening, I often do so in the backyard. Now, my backyard is not particularly well cultivated at the moment. I don't have any trees, but all my neighbors do. And since I live in Orange County, you know, even in the summer, the evenings are usually mild because we get the breeze coming up the ocean. And I do that as often as I can precisely because it helps me wind down after the day's work and remember what's really important. You know, embracing the, 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 the wind in your hair and the, and the setting sun on your cheeks and all that allows God's creation to be a comforting presence in your life. You know, modern science uh, has demonstrated that a natural environment can help your physical health, you know, improve your blood pressure and your, your heart rate and so on. But even more important than this is the fact that it can benefit you spiritually by bringing you closer to God. And that is no nonsense. Well, as always, thank you for listening. Great to be with you. Going to be do it all again next week. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget to... Uh, um, Download the VMPR smartphone app. There's a lot of content on there these days. Also, visit vmpr.org and see what's going on. And if uh, if you are in the circumstances where you can, hit that donate button. We sure appreciate all your help, financial and especially spiritual. Till next time, may God richly bless you and your family.